maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. twice monthly better than OK Corral of the previous two weeks in cinema and television and the forthcoming fortnight in Prospect. In this issue, your hosts Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy discuss the triumph of form in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk and the relative merits of yet another night at the Apatow Improv with Michael Showalter's The Big Sick. Something's wrong cause my mind is fading Everywhere I look there's a dead end waiting Temperatures dropping at the rotten oasis Stealing kisses from the leprous faces um, I'm absolutely gutted. I've uh, missed the beguiled Sophia Coppola's um, uh, remake which came out recently. I think that was in the cinema for a couple of weeks and I've missed it. I'm going to try and catch that Ipswich Film Theatre just down the A140 but... Um, I'll see how time allows leaving the office. I think that's one that you did actually manage to catch, is it not? Yeah, beautifully composed picture. And always welcome to hear Colin Farrell's Irish brogue deliver such lines as You hateful bitches! (laughs) (laughs) Heard through a wall at climatic periods in the film. I did watch The Lobster on Netflix the other day. Oh, isn't it good? It it really is good. And uh, he's got his thick Irish accent in that. And uh, my God, that was a laugh a minute. It's so dour and uh, for anyone who doesn't know I, I think most people listening will be at least aware of the lobster but it's sort of set in a alternative post-apocalyptic future for want of a better way of putting it where um people are forced to you know either be in relationships or uh, or get turned into animals and it's just as odd as it sounds and uh, it's everyone everyone in the in the movie is playing it absolutely straight but um you're certainly invited to to laugh along with it aren't you it's uh, it's an interesting film um the, a, a lot of the lobster it felt like um i don't know like like those russian films like stalker where they're just in the the bleak bleak woods yeah you know in, yeah. in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and uh but they do they do go to the city in uh, in in the lobster um and it's, they walk to the city don't they they walk to the city yeah walking everywhere it's interesting you mentioned stalker i've recently joined a criterion collection facebook group and stalker is blowing up Twice a year, I'd say. Barnes & Noble have a half-off sale on Criterion Collection DVDs. I import them, although there is now a very limited Criterion selection in the UK. I'm still importing them because I don't want the BBFC classification on what I consider ruining the cover artwork. Anyway, (laughs) so many posts about. I've already got 12, but I've gone... I passed Barnes & Noble again. I'm going back to the website... Uh, I'm entering debt and loan sharks are after me, but I need to get Stalker. <laughs> Everyone's been buying Stalker and chatting about Stalker. It's, a, it, it's, it, a, it's a good film. Was it the first time you saw The Lobster? Yes, it was. It, a, a, a little bit like The Beguiled. It was one that I tried to catch at the cinema, but if you miss that... You know, I'm not living in London anymore, and if you miss that week-long window that you have, quite yeah. often these things are gone. Uh, so all you need is some work drinks or something to throw you throw you off your routine, and then... Uh, suddenly, boom! You're in uh, you're in tardy cinema land where, <laughs> where you've missed the missed the movie. 
<laughs> the, di- the dialogue is delivered in a very particular way, and I wondered if it's because the screenplay pre- written by Greeks was presumably then translated into English. Uh, I have a friend of Greek origin whose mother is full Greek, who speaks Greek herself, and who speaks in a similar way when she's speaking in English. She speaks without an accent, but it's very much like Colin Farrell in particular. There's an interaction between him and Rachel Vice later with Mike Smiley as well, but between him and Rachel Vice, and he says something like, I'd like to learn a second language. I think I'd like to learn German. On second thoughts, I think that German is a very difficult language to learn. And so, no, no, maybe I won't learn that at all. Maybe I've decided I won't do that. And the bit with... Um, it, it's, even you, more, it's even more matter-of-fact than the way you just said it as well. Like, you, you actually sounded like you were thinking of the next thing. He just says it all in almost one syllable. Uh, there's a great moment as well where his... I mean, it's on Netflix, so people can stream it, and it's not a major spoiler. Yeah. But uh, there's um, a potential match of his. He's in the hotel, isn't he? And look, they're looking for matches, uh, good romantic fits, or, or good uh, almost biological fits, so they uh, don't have to be turned into animals. And there's <laughs> the uh, the first person he comes across is in the hot tub and pretends to choke on her own vomit, and. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. He stares at her looking quite lifelessly. And then she stops choking, pretend, you know, pretends to die, then looks up at him again and says, I think we're a match. Because, <laughs> because he's obviously a sadist too. Is. No, I can't remember who it is. He's obviously a sadist too, like her. So uh, uh, she says, I think we're a match. I think we are too. And that's it. He has to be a bastard in order to impress her. So he starts... He kicks a child in the shin. And it's really, mm. it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funnier remembering it than it was I, I liked it when I watched it and I thought that's a good film but remembering it is even funnier the bit with the zipper with Mike Smiley um, they, he's testing his eyesight because he decides that a good match for him is someone with similarly poor eyesight either nearsighted or farsighted something about YKK is printed on all zippers so you would have definitely got that and that was very easy for you to get so that's not a very good example of that <laughs> How have you Where remembered is... it? How have you remembered it so well? I really like his accent, and he, again, he's, <laughs> he's he's terrific in the Beguiled. It's all um, as soon as he. I'm certain that the listeners will be aware of the premise of the Beguiled. Both the Sophia Coppola version and Don Siegel's account begin with Colin Farrell, an injured Union soldier, found hiding out, wounded in the forest, and is taken back to a a girls' school, and he begins charming them, each of them. There are uh, many beautiful scenes in which he has his individual bonding moment with each of the girls. Yeah, I, I like him a lot. I think um, for a long period, Colin Farrell was a drunk and it yeah. definitely inhibited the roles he was taking and the performances he was able to give. It was uh, Tigerland by Joel Schumacher at the turn of the century, followed by Phone Booth, which propelled him into the A-list. Mm-hmm. He just got pissed up for a few years. And McConaughey had a similar... McConaughey wasn't a drunk, but um, as soon as the both of them got famous, they immediately forgot what made them good and spent five or six years in the doldrums. But Farrell recently has uh, cleaned himself up. And he's spoken about this on, I remember, Jonathan Ross and all sorts of programmes. He's he's got the candour that's usually associated with anybody who's fallen into substance abuse or Mm -hmm. um, alcohol dependency. Russell Brand's the same. And now... Once again, a lot of his work is incredibly interesting to me, like in Bruges, The Lobster, The Beguiled is a good pick. And he tried he did what he could with True Detective too. 
Yes. Now, I need to watch that again because the, the oh. second the second season. Yeah, uh, you and I uh, we were living together at the time, weren't we, for True Detective two? And yeah. every every week we thought it's going to get better. Uh, it's going to kick into gear any week now, and yeah. it didn't yeah. really quite didn't quite happen for us, did it? Generally speaking, it was nothing worth watching, and then it was only the second half of the season that got anywhere near the heights of the first year with McConaughey and Woody. But Colin Farrell did as much as he could with it. I'm glad yeah. to watch The Lobster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen any of that director's earlier... I think he did Houndstooth. Uh, sorry, not Houndstooth, uh, Dogtooth, and I haven't seen it. I must catch up with those. There's so much to watch, though. There's always so much to watch. There is so much to watch. Well, The Lobster's very accessible for anyone who hasn't seen it. Highly recommended. That's sitting there on Netflix. Great poster as well. Looks like a real 1970s uh, mm. poster. I really, really enjoy that. It was one of the first things that struck me about it when it came out in theatres but um that's stuff that's been and gone i suppose and is currently on streaming services uh in your home uh is there anything coming up fletch that you wanted to touch upon this week yes the ghoul has already opened that's by gareth tunley a contemporary and friend of ben wheatley down terrace kill list high rise free fire and it features a lot of the ben wheatley simon Pegg comedy set tom meaton alice lowe Paul Kay, Rufus Jones and Daniel Renton Skinner. Luke, you'll remember him as Angelos Epithemiu. That's already out. I don't know how people are going to catch it. It's at very selected cinemas across London, which probably means it's only in three or four other cinemas in the country. But it's probably video on demand. On August 11th, a ghost story opens by David Lowry, who did Ain't Them Body Saints, reunites him with his cast from that film, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Will Oldham's in it, very occasional actor who... Most listeners, and certainly Luke, will know better as Bonnie Prince Billy. You've, have you seen the posters for A Ghost Story? They're those which depict what we would think of as a conventional 19th century Western ghost, someone under a sheet. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen the posters. They're pretty striking. And um, it's, <laughs> it is like a man, it's the man under a sheet, isn't it? But uh, I don't think I've ever been quite so scared by a man under a sheet as in that picture. <laughs> it's chilling. There's something very chilling about it. Redolent of the spooks of Bottle Bay. Yes, I was trying to picture it. I was going to say Funny Bones, and of course it's not Funny Bones because they were animated skeletons. Spooks of Bottle Bay, that's 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 the one, isn't it? It's right there. They've had terrific theme tunes, but the first thing it made me think of was, well, I guess after the scurrilous rumour-mongering about alleged sexual improprieties... The only way that Casey can get cast these days is if he wears a smock over his head, like incognito <laughs> That's style. Terrible! All alleged. <laughs> this is alleged. Alleged. Of course, of course. This, we're, this, we're, the, not, uh, we're not libelous. The depth of the opprobrium he received for allegations was shaking to me. Mm-hmm. And this is his first big film since winning the Academy Award, and since the internet decided that he was essentially a rapist. And I just, I. I looked around for as much information as I could and thought, you know, there was a time when we called this rumours, or gossip was the word for it, gossip. Now it's enough to try to torpedo someone's career, which is a big shame. But yeah, I think that's the entire reason why he's under a sheet the whole time. Uh, Another one that's coming out on August 11th, so by the time you have heard this, listeners, I'd encourage you to catch them where you can. Porn Sacrifice by Ed Zwick, known for recently Defiance and Blood Diamond, but a long time ago Glory... Courage Under Fire, and uh, 30-something as well, the 80s-90s dramedy, which I used to watch with my parents and not understand any of it because I was about eight years old. Edswick is uh, a 
like a great Hollywood liberal, I suppose. Glory was the story of the first black company fighting for the Union in the American Civil War. The siege is about... Well, the siege tries to be a fair-sided look at Islamic terrorism in the late 90s, pre-9-11. But the, the most interesting thing to me about Porn Sacrifice, which stars Tobey Maguire, Lee Schreiber, Peter Sarsgaard, good cast is it was shot and released three years ago in the States, and I can't find any reason why it's taken so long to get its cinematic airing here, other than it might not be very good. So with that caveat, and on August 18th, Final Portrait, a welcome return for Stanley Tucci as a director, who directed two of my favourite comedies of the 90s, Big Night and The Impostors, both with Tony Shalhoub, who appears here. If you're able to see any of those, let us know how you get along with them, and I'd also like listeners, and I'm sure, Luke, you would agree with me, I'd, much, I'd love it if listeners from all around the country emailed into us and wrote to us on Facebook telling us about where they like to see films so that we might bring patronage to some of the smaller cinemas across the country, the smaller independent cinemas, especially if they're doing revivals, Yeah. if sure. they have different seasons coming up. I know that The Prince Charles, for instance, has... David Fincher and David Lynch seasons running essentially concurrently and we might touch on those in the next couple of months but how, how do people get in touch with us because I never remember <laughs> you've touched on the big ones uh, Facebook of course if you search One Sensational Shot we're also on Twitter at One Sensational and uh, OneSensationalShot.com is the website there's a contact form there very very easy to get in touch so uh, yeah Facebook, Twitter all the Twitters and uh, and <laughs> And uh, the website. So, yeah, lots of ways to get in touch with us and um, look forward to, to hearing. Yeah, it, it, would be, it would be great to um, begin to name check some of these smaller places that are around the country and, um, you know, give, give them their dues where, where, uh, where it's earned. So that would be lovely, yeah. Because it's not our intention for the show to be so London-centric. That's by dint of it being my backyard. But mm. the same problem applies to most national newspapers uh, journalists generate stories about London because they all live in London they don't really look outside of London then maybe once in a while they go as far as Buckinghamshire or Brighton which mm. is almost a different country for yeah. them. it's like yeah, going yeah, yeah. to France but a, a slightly more liberal France <laughs> but share, yeah, share your enthusiasm with us and also did I catch you quoting already Soderbergh's Logan Lucky there <laughs> yeah, you did actually. Uh, I've seen that trailer a lot over the past few weeks, and uh, I can't wait for that one. Oh my days! Yeah, it looks like it's going to be um, a great heist picture, and Daniel Craig looks like he's finally getting a kind of character role that he should get his teeth into. Uh, being a leading man hasn't quite worked out for Mr. Daniel Craig, um, apart from the obvious James Bond. But outside of James Bond, um, he's been getting involved in the likes of Cowboys and Aliens. And uh, the Golden Compass. Having a character role such as that one, he's putting on a thick accent. Uh, maybe that will work out very well for him. And uh, it even f I think he's actually now confirmed that he's going to finally do another Bond, despite saying he'd rather... Was it oh. cut his wrists or slit his wrists? Something horrific. Uh, so maybe he's finally had his moment in the sun. They, they've, let him, they've let him go out and play for a bit. And now he's, he's come back in. It's time for dinner. And it's time to do another James, <laughs> it's time to do another James Bond. <laughs> the last ensemble I saw him in that I recall was Munich. Ah, yeah, of course. Yeah, really good Very point. Very soon after either he received the Bond role or his first foray as Bond in Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino Royale was 2006. Munich was six or seven, wasn't it? So Yeah. Yeah. 
and I thought it was terrific playing a South African Jew with the accent. Uh, it's a film I've got an awful lot of time for. Spielberg operating at the very zenith of his powers. There are 400,000 men on this beach. You're listening to The Evening Glass with Fletcher and Luke. Dunkirk. Yeah, well, Christopher Nolan's latest epic, and uh, and what a film it was. I say epic, shorter than most of his other films. Uh, it was it's economical, and that's what I love about it. Uh, it's it does exactly what it needs to do. It doesn't waste time. It doesn't pad things out. It's it's an economical film that as soon as you begin to hear the tick tock tick tock of the watch in the soundtrack it just does not let up does it and yeah. um it does it's doing interesting things with timings as well we can come on to this in a minute but um what i didn't realize and it was only on subsequent reading online and i, I feel ashamed that i didn't realize it in the cinema because maybe it was painfully obvious what i didn't realize was that the three timelines are slightly out of sync and you know, the air, for example, with Tom Hardy flying around in his Spitfire is probably only an hour or two of, of actual real lifetime. Whereas the mole segment with Harry Styles and the rest uh, is a good couple of weeks on the beach. So this is something that I wasn't necessarily aware of until subsequently reading reading the film. And I think I think the C segment is a couple of days Really, really good uh, article on Screen Rant that I'd recommend people go out and, and, and check out. But uh, it's one thing that, that that certainly does get across is, okay, the editing's not literal in the way that you'd watch a traditional war film or a traditional film, whereas you've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, like I say, the timelines of each three strands is slightly different. But it really does emphasise the fact that these were normal people. They're not heroes. They do not know who one another is. They're working class. They're 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 enlisted, or the, well, because they're not enlisted, are they? They've signed up by this point, aren't they? They're the expeditionary force, but they're they're mm. regular Joes who've um, who've signed up to, and are in this extraordinary situation, and uh, and it's the everyman and it's the it's the actions that they're taking that are having having an effect on everyone else. So it is people banding together and doing, you know, achieving incredible things, and I think that. In that sense, that it was wonderful to see how the film got that across with these three very distinct, distinct strands of uh, of story, uh, told in, like I say, different timescales, different time frames. As an audience, we're used to anti-war films, but this is an anti-war film. We need to reposition the hyphen. It's not like war films that we've seen before. Certainly not <clears throat> English language war films. Certainly nothing that's come out of Hollywood. I did. I wasn't entirely satisfied with it, but I don't want to lead with my negative criticisms. I'd rather think about first the things that were excellent, and it's got the typical. Uh, Christopher Nolan has been playing with form mm -hmm. since his very first theatrical releases, mm -hmm. uh, following, but especially Memento. Yeah. And every film of his we watch. Now, if we go back to 1994, Pulp Fiction, and before that, Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino took from all of the foreign cinema that he watched. Uh, a, the continual repositioning and uh, interesting editing, I suppose, of 
the actual narrative. And I, I had to go back, I, just to, to talk about this with a, a kind of greater intelligence, I went back to a book that I had in sixth form for an A-level class I took in film. And there's two, there's specific words for it. So the, the, pretend, the presentation of the film is called Sujet, and the chronological order is called Fabula. But for the intents and purposes of the podcast, of course, I'll just speak like a normal person <laughs> rather, than, <laughs> rather than Marshall McLuhan. Nolan has always played with the presentation of the film. It's in Interstellar. Yeah. And front and centre in Dunkirk. But that's one of the things that didn't quite function for me. Uh, I was with the film's presentation of the narrative when it jumped from the rescue of Killian Murphy back to how he became stranded on the hull of that boat. Mm, But then later on, when Tom Hardy, to put it in layman's terms, spends about an hour going after the same plane... On the third or fourth run-through of that, I was confused. I didn't know whether it was one salty or a second completely discreet salty. Mm. So it, it was at that point that I wondered, and it took me out of the film a little bit, and I wondered whether Nolan's approach to form was having a, a negative effect on the story he was telling. Usually it has a positive effect, especially with Memento. That film works better than normal thrillers mm-hmm. and is more thrilling because of its backwards-forwards narrative. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree the, with that. Uh, the sujet, as I had to look up. <laughs> uh, that's proper Russian, uh, like, 20s Eisenstein film um, terminology. And I knew I had it somewhere back in my mind. I was thinking back to 99, I think it was. Uh, so I'll go through some of, my other, some of my other problems with the film, right, and I'll see what you think of them. Um, I thought the first 45 or 50 minutes was immaculate, Before I'd seen Dunkirk, going into it, I didn't watch any of the trailers. I kept away from as much publicity as possible. But I recalled saying to friends what I was hoping for, what it seemed that Nolan had been driving at for the last at least 10 years, was a perfect synthesis of Terence Malick and Michael Mann. So Malick and Mann. Definitely Michael Mann's heat, which we saw in The Dark Knight, beginning with the atonal drone, the initial bank robbery perpetrated by the Joker and his henchmen. So everyone knows that Dark Knight's like heat, and I think that Nolan has been approaching that for the last decade. Mm. Uh, and he, he's close to an apogee, a, a perfect melding of those things. And Chris Wynn, having seen Dunkirk, mentioned as well that there are scenes in the sky and in the channel that show what he called uh, the indifferent, the indifference of nature mm-hmm. to the predicament. These very small boats and very small planes buzzing around while the world gets on with itself. And that's something Malik has always done really well. Uh, I don't know if that was Nolan's intention. Going into the film, that's what I hoped for. And it's always important to separate uh, expectations and what I want from the film and what the filmmaker wants to show me. So, for instance, most of the criticisms I've heard of number one said that the scale was all wrong. And number two, an audience paying to see a film called Dunkirk expected it to be about Dunkirk. Now, I don't want to be a contrarian, but what instead we receive is the filmmaker's point of view, and I think that's a positive thing. Um, he had to Christopher Nolan had to name the film Dunkirk, and obviously for commercial reasons needed to base it around the notion of Dunkirk itself. Mm. But what I mean to say is that what he found in the situation in 1940 of the evacuation of 300,000 troops from Dunkirk was a spirit of survival. And this is the thing, it's all over buses, all over London, mm. Survive, uh, survival is victory. 
he's, he's made it very clear to us that this isn't a film about the slow evacuation of hundreds of thousands of soldiers over the course of 10 days, supported by a flotilla of little boats. It's not about that. It's about individual stories of survival, determination, and fear as well, and escape. So Yeah, that's, those... that's certainly how the, the film concludes, you know, in, in, in that positive way, that people feel ashamed that they've merely survived and that they're going to be... Um you know held in disdain by the country and of course they're, yeah. they're greeted with beer and uh and uh and, and pastry like yeah sandwiches trade unionist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah but yeah and and um it, going back to one of the most positive aspects of the film i welled up at that point and i'll talk more about it in a moment but definitely when kit nolan's uncle um the aide fellow that's handing out blankets sandwiches and beer at the station um uh, Fionn Whitehead and Harry Styles pass him and he says well done lads they respond but all we did was survive and he says that's enough Yeah. and it's around that time that I re- you better understand what the theme of the film is It's yes it's about a real life incident but it's more about all that, yeah, all that they needed to do was persevere and then the snowball whirs back into gear and all of the last four or five minutes, uh, I thought the film ended perfectly as the train pulls into the... It's, it's a station somewhere in Surrey, wasn't it? Or was it... Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Right, right about there. So they leave, they go from Dorset, don't they, to... Uh, I think they end up in Guildford. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of my neck of the woods and reminded me I need to uh, re-watch or at least read War of the Worlds. Yeah, that's where ever... that's where it goes down in, in War of the Worlds. Yeah, I've read the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mad. It's talking. It's all West London and Surrey. It is, um, yeah. Places where uh, uh, Epsom, <laughs> where uh, Derek Williamson, a uh, listener and good friend of Luke and I and mine, uh, where he's from. It's great as well that reading, reading the novel War of the Worlds is that uh, you really get a sense of the geography of London because there's a lot of walking and walking from place to place uh, in the mm. post-apocalyptic environment that the Martians have, uh, you know, obviously they've blown, blown up London. So, uh, yeah, that- you really get a sense of the geography, which is great. Although it had its flaws, I thought Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which he directed and was released at the same time as Munich in a similar way to his double header of Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, yeah. I thought War of the Worlds was excellent. We were speaking briefly about Spielberg earlier. But to try and give um to try and be very unlike Kit Nolan and give it chronologically, my view and experience of Dunkirk was for the first forty five minutes I was on the edge of tears, and I think it was because of the pure tension and anxiety of the situation. Now, I knew that it was Nolan's intention to create a whole film of the building snowball scenes that he has in all of his films. So Nolan's intention was to create an entire film that kept whirring, as you said, kept the clock ticking, Mm. that made us tense. And so... I think I went into it wanting to like it and wanting to experience that, and that's why I felt so emotional for the first almost half of the film. But also I think it did elicit that from me genuinely as well. And so for 45 minutes I was completely under its spell. And then it shit the bed on three fronts. Brief five to ten minute period, which took me so far out of the film that it took another 10-15 minutes for me to get back into it. I was that shocked... And then the last 10 minutes were once again immaculate. But I'll go back to what almost ruined it for me. And I'll see, Luke, if you have the same problems. I've spoken to a couple of people and they didn't really see it like this. And this this isn't my intention to be pretentious, but genuinely, this is how my visceral reaction to the film. After that 50-minute mark that I've spoken of so much, 
three predicaments occur. Mm-hmm. Killian Murphy knocks a child down a set of stairs in a boat. Yeah. The uh, Scotch aviator successfully ditches into the channel, then has to escape his canopy. Mm. And Harry Styles, Fionn Whitehead and a load of Highlanders stuck in the hull of a boat begin arguing yes. about who has to leave. And I found each of those personal vignettes so contrived. The escape from the canopy was okay, but we've seen a man imperiled and imperil in that way in a hundred action films. Anytime a protagonist needs to <laughs> break open a window, mm. break it open, here comes the train, break it open harder, almost done, the train's about to... Ah, he's through, mm. we're all right. It was pulled off adequately, but it was too contrived for what up till then had been an astonishing and very different film. The uh, Killian Murphy on the boat, nonsense. Contriving to have him maim that child. Why was the kid on the boat anyway? Once again, it felt very much like not something organic from a narrative, but a screenwriter thinking, "Ah, how do I make some tension here? Yeah, well... The the, the, the tension comes from it being Dunkirk, mate. And then the third one is out of every survival horror we've ever seen. You're the outsider situations where there's 12 people in a room and they turn on each other mm. it lost me and for five or ten minutes honestly for five or ten minutes i sat there thinking i can't believe how badly he's, he's done that this was going indescribably affecting and now it's just a film so what do you reckon how did you feel about those things well you put it in such stark terms that is uh that i i now feel almost ashamed to say that that didn't hit me at the time uh it I was excited by Silly Murphy's character and I thought the tension f- for me there was that I kept assuming he was going to go further. Like, I know that he essentially accidentally hits the kid down the stairs, but I thought he was, because he was shell-shocked, I thought he was just going to blow at any minute and I, I thought he may, that that situation may escalate further. I can see what you mean about trying to get out the cockpit of the Spitfire. That was pretty um, contrived and, and yes, we've seen that a lot before. Yes, um, so uh, Harry Styles, Fionn Whitehead, and, and their their story when they're sort of stuck in the boat and then deciding who's going to go out, and it's obviously that they're picking on sort of the outsiders. Yeah, I, I see exactly what you mean. We've seen that in, in pretty much every slasher pick before. It does play into a key theme of Dunkirk, though, which was was like I say, ordinary people banding together to do extraordinary things, and um, you know, trying to single out someone as an outsider was is obviously something that the, the film, by and large, sort of wags a finger at. So I suppose it played into a, a theme there. And I really did enjoy after that when um, they were in the boat and it was being used for target practice and then it started to fill up with water. All of that stuff yeah. I thought was, was, was great. And um, uh, the use, you know, the, the sound design when they're in the boat was, was fantastic. And just hearing those shots ri- yeah. ricochet everywhere was, was really wonderful. But yes, I see what you moment when it, when it, when it what you mean when it, when it, that, that moment where those three elements uh, kind of come to a little bit of a crescendo just to the edge of a cliff and it's all, it all happens pretty much simultaneously. Um, yeah. I now feel a little ashamed to, uh, I mean, for, for me, the, the, the bit that where it fell down was, was at the end where it was just a bit too twee and a bit too nostalgic and a bit too, he's not, a, he, you know, Nolan's not a uh, warm director. He's not a... No, no, he, not human. He, no. He's not human. And, and you know, it's a criticism that's been leveled at him a lot in the past that a lot of the... Uh, performances he gets from the actors can be on the slightly more cold side, and I th- 
yeah. And I think, well, it's very cold, isn't it? But but towards the end, when we were supposed to suddenly have this, I know that you said you moved to tears, but that there were some moments I think one because I thought Harry Styles was great throughout that film. I didn't really think of him as Harry Styles. I just thought he was putting in a good performance. Um, and there was a, there was a couple lines he had at the end when they were actually in the train and being welcomed as heroes. Where I just thought, oh, it's just so cheesy and I don't think he even delivered it you know I don't think he even believed in what he was (laughs) trying to deliver there Mm. and uh, for me where it got a little overly sentimental at the end it didn't quite work because you know Spielberg can pull on your heartstrings in a certain way and um, kind of get away with it and I didn't didn't I personally didn't think Nolan got away with it at the end there himself he saved it for me with two shots Hardy landing the plane on the beach and for a moment it seemed like the film would end with a shot of the plane on fire Mm. which I thought to myself is like that's cool Nolan but you've got to come harder than that and then he did then a, a brief flashback to the Tommy on the train wondering what this all meant for them wondering what was next I can't yet quite put into words what the burning plane meant it clearly connected with us, and it, it means something. It's something that we can read into, isn't it? Yeah. But it's something, it, in a way, it's still glib. But then moving back to the Tommy, taking it back to the, rather than a grand statement, an, an overarching theme about British perseverance, or, or rather just the perseverance of humanity, going back to the individual, that made it hit harder for me. So that was a masterstroke. But, yeah, he lost me. Lost me after 50 minutes, and it became... And we can talk about my expectations for the film... But it became a normal film after the halfway point. You mentioned uh, some people have been talking about scale, sense of scale. Uh, it's not a criticism mm. I've, I've managed to catch uh, up on. Is that something that you've uh, sort of been discussing with people recently? Yeah, and the best explanation of it was by our pal Adam Manning, fellow Norwich resident, who I catch up with a couple of times a year when we see Fulham Norwich play or Norwich Fulham. And uh, because of those harrowing experiences twice yearly we try not to see each other other than that because that's frankly that's enough emotion but he said that watching Save and Private Ryan for instance and this was the example that he gave as an audience we land with the troops at Utah Beach but it's understood that what's happening on Utah is also happening on Sword and Juno and four or five other sites along the coastline Mm. so it's it's synecdoche isn't it we're seeing a very small part of a much larger operation Mm -hmm. We know that it's replicated throughout, and that was the nature of the D-Day invasion. However, Dunkirk was just a small strip of beach um, between four and eight miles wide, I think, mm-hmm. through which three to 400,000 men evacuated, as I've said, over an, uh, a period of six to ten days. Mm-hmm. In, in, in dribs and drabs, if you can call entire companies dribs and drabs, but essentially in dribs and drabs. And during the course of the film, Manning was disappointed that where were the extras essentially? Yeah. Uh, now, I, you know, Nolan used cutouts just like in <laughs> in the medal uh, in the award ceremony at the end of Star Wars, which I think takes its cue from Triumph of the Will, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> By right. You're absolutely uh, right. I don't know what Spielberg thought of that. I wonder if he, <laughs> George. Uh, um, <laughs> I did like it up until the point it became a redolent of Nazi propaganda. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I just thought it was great filmmaking. Well, it's, we, Why'd you gotta um, be so precious about it? That's what that's one of his uh, classic ones. When, uh, I, when, oh, really? Yeah, when collaborators, um, collaborators have said to him... That there's a story with when uh, Dave Filoni was making Clone Wars, the TV show, with him. And uh, 
Boba Fett's Boba Fett loses his helmet, which is the one he's, he, he takes from his father, and it's the one that obviously has the dent in. You see Samuel L. Jackson essentially help give give it the dent in the second Star Wars prequel. So you're like, oh, that's, so yeah. that's Boba Fett's helmet, isn't it? That's the one. And then um, he made him in this episode of the TV show. He loses the helmet and it gets destroyed. And Dave Filoni said, uh, but that's the one. Isn't that Boba Fett's helmet from Empire Strikes Back, George? And he just says, well, why do you got to be so precious about everything? <laughs> that's him. It's does, just that the right... an in... does that create an incontinuity? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Ultimately, but he just doesn't care. So uh, whether he's basing the end of his film on Nazi propaganda or not, oh, why do why do you got to be so precious? <laughs> but, but anyway, um, and I, you know, I I think that Manning has a point. Uh, you call the film Dunkirk, whether or not it's about Dunkirk or about the triumph of not the will but the human bid to survive. An audience will expect a certain level of scale because. Everything happened at this one place. And that isn't conveyed properly in the film. Now, it wasn't a problem for me because I accepted, as you talked about at the beginning of this segment, Nolan took snatches of what happened in real life in order to tell the story that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that's I think you got the, the, um, the timing slightly wrong, but it's an hour in the air, mm-hmm. a day in the sea, and a couple of days on the beaches. Oh, right, okay. And he, he can... So you'd kind of opened it up, but um, he can he condenses it. And so I can accept that when Whitehead, who I think actually plays a character called Tommy, yeah, when he yeah. runs onto the beach at the beginning and when he's around the beach, all right, it's fair enough that he only sees thousands of men rather than tens of thousands. And as I've said... My understanding of the actual event is that there, I don't think there at any point there were 200,000 men stood on a beach. Um, it's rather a large target, isn't it? Mm. Even if the uh, German war machine was slightly running to catch up and trying to overcome French resistance, I think they'd figure out that they could just bl- blow up the whole army at one point, you know. <laughs> Maybe come around the back or something or use catapults, I don't know. But a lot of people have had a problem with the sense of scale. Yeah, it, you know what? It, I thought the same thing. But I didn't know enough about the historical events to to um, pay it any mind. I, I kind of felt at some point it was really going to become big. And you were going to really get a sense of yeah. what was happening on the beach. Like I kind of thought, oh, this beach is going to keep filling up with people. And they're going to get increasingly desperate to get them off. That didn't necessarily yeah. happen. Um, but I, I paid it no mind cause, because I thought, as you've just outlined... Ah, well, I think that it was more over a period of time, dribs and drabs. It wasn't everyone standing there at once. So that was, um, that's what I put it down to. But yeah, yeah, I, I now see what people were saying because it was certainly a thought that crossed my mind when I was, when I was in the movie. Something else I wanted to talk about with you, Fletch, on, on, on the subject yeah. of Dunkirk. I wonder if this is the shape of things to come from Nolan. I actually heard an interview with him uh, not so long ago, I think with the BBC, where they were talking about how uh, narratively at the end of the film it feels like you're actually going into something bigger now. Uh, it, there's a there's a sense of a new beginning, and of course part of that is because they've victory was through survival, and now the next victory is probably going to have to come through victory. So that it's now time to regroup. Mm. You know, we end with the triumphant Churchill speech, don't we? Fight them on the beaches, etc., etc. Yeah. So you really get a sense of okay, now something's happening. And he actually mentioned in the interview, I remember that narratively, a lot of P audiences these days are used to that feeling. Uh, we we've joked about how all of the James Bond films these days end with, oh, it now feels like he's finally James Bond. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, when are you going to take a fucking mission, Bond? <laughs> Do your job and uh, yeah. taxpayer money. Exactly. Oh, he's gone rogue again, again. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, I don't know the Marvel films, all, all sorts of films. These films now they they kind of always end with a look to what's coming up in the sequel, don't they? Essentially, and you get a sense of it, it hints at it. And uh, I think Dunkirk does that as as well, even though it's clearly a standalone film. Something else is that he. You know, I spoke about that sentimentality and the fact that he doesn't shy away from it. And he actually, I, I feel like he really, I think he um, really relished the opportunity to be sentimental at the end and uh, and, and look ahead to what, what was going to come. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, people have managed to survive this terrible ordeal and now it was time to regroup, etc, etc. So um, basically, I, I wonder if the fact that he, 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 I wonder if he has made this film, almost in that traditional war film sense, where it's it's a film made for young people. You know, it's not gory. It's not saving Private Ryan levels of gore. Um, maybe mm. maybe there's an element of the box office that they wanted from it. I don't know. But um, it, it's it's a fairly accessible film. Uh, narrative timings in narrative aside, as we've touched upon, mm. it's an accessible film. There's not a lot of gore. You can take a twelve year old person to see it. Uh, it's an important yeah. film that gives them a bit of historical context. It's a bit of a history lesson, not without its. Uh, national bravado to to a certain extent just like those old films from the 40s and the 50s uh those old war films Mm -hmm. so i I wonder if the next one is going to be battle of britain i wonder if he'll actually make that and uh and 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 just that'll be his next project um yeah i've heard that mentioned although how is he going to cast tom hardy if he's already been captured uh, why are you going to be so precious? <laughs> they'll, 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 they'll write they'll write around that they'll write around that no no you I, i have i have heard it mentioned and uh there's a couple of things to take out of what you've said there i think if you found it sentimental then there's a problem there and he isn't spielberg he isn't kubrick either i've seen many comparisons with kubrick especially a couple of articles written in the guardian suggesting that this is finally uh nolan arrives at the the heights of kubrickian cinema that this could be his paths of glory mm. but he's quite different there i for me it's been and to make it clear to the listeners i've an awful lot of time for christopher nolan i think he is the great white hope of Hollywood box office cinema. But once you get to a certain level of filmmaking, we have certain expectations immediately. So we've got such high expectations of Christopher Nolan that then he transcends to a new level. Um, I, I don't think I've explained that particularly well, but hopefully we've got another 15 years of podcasts where I can try to be more eloquent. No, than my it, it makes complete. It <laughs> makes sense to me. I mean, ultimately it's all relative, isn't it? You know, you expect certain things. Yeah. From, a three out of five film it's not it's not always three out of it it depends on who yeah, the context of the the making of the film who's made it who's it, who's in it and all the rest of it yeah and it, and it's unfair so for instance michael bay is a challenging filmmaker editing uh cinematography is all top notch but he's he is absolutely let down by his emotional intelligence it's utterly adolescent so if michael bay suddenly made a film which didn't seem like it was from the mind of a 12-year-old, we would all applaud. And it wouldn't be fair on any other filmmaker, of course, who does that as a matter of course. But to see Michael Bay come on in that way would be impressive. And it's the same with Nolan. For me, it's very pronounced that the the only times in any of his films that I've really laughed since uh, the first two pictures he made in Hollywood, Memento and Insomnia... Mm. Um, are these flipping robots <laughs> they're the only humor they're the only humorous human 
emotional, emoting characters in his films, uh, Tars and Case. McConaughey does well in Interstellar, but really, like, for instance, Inception is exposition after exposition. Ellen Page's character seems to exist only to act as an avatar for the audience, Mm. to ask Leonardo DiCaprio, who's clearly playing Christopher Nolan, the director, where are we, what level are we at, tell me again what the hell's going on. I mean, Inception's an interesting film to take apart at a superficial level. It's about the filmmaking process with Leonardo DiCaprio playing Christopher Nolan. Same suit, same hair. Ken Watanabe is a producer. Oh, sorry, no. Yeah, Ken Watanabe is the executive producer. Ellen Page is the, uh, the writer of the world. Tom Hardy is literally an actor. And these roles are filled out. The Inception is about the filmmaking process. And that works very well, but there's... uh, only brief burst of humanity in most of these films or it's levity that is missing in the films of Christopher Nolan and we find it in Inception in brief glimmers through Tom Hardy's character with the robots in Interstellar Alfred is meant to bring some in the Dark Knight films and does to an extent but there is humour in everyday life and humour in all situations and Christopher Nolan sidesteps that and, and but that's one way in which Dunkirk works exceptionally well for the first 45 minutes there is zero characterization. It's uh, devoted to a certain filmmaking exercise of elevated tension, as you said, escalation, which to dart around a bit is what The Dark Knight is all about. Escalation. Um, uh, Batman is introduced to the world of Gotham. Its response is to escalate the peril. So once within the criminal fraternity in Gotham, there were rules. They operated under... um, Tom Wilkinson's Carmine Falcone, and in the second one, Eric Roberts. But there were rules. They had their get-togethers, didn't they? Their roundtables, yeah. Yeah, yeah. gamble, etc., the Chechen. Once Batman's introduced, uh, the criminal fraternity's response is a certain escalation, and that's how Joker comes in, something that cannot be contained. Mm-hmm. And escalation is what we see in Dunkirk. All of it's elevated. So I'll tell you, when they get onto the, they get onto the troop transport, mm-hmm. one character stays on deck... Harry Styles asks yeah. Whitehead why has he stayed on deck and he says well he wants a way out. Mm. That entire sequence was masterful and like Munich connected so well to me at a very uh, at the level of like a human psyche level. We've talked about David Lynch doing it. David Lynch knowing how to expertly depict nightmares in Munich Spielberg better than I've ever seen the attack on the Israeli athletes and their hostage taking I've had dreams. It's as though Spielberg knew how my dreams played out. A constant air of menace, running, just small snatches like that. And it's the same with Dunkirk. I've had it sometimes with when I've boarded a flight and I've just thought, I need to know where my exits are. Mm. And you all, you can, you mentally plan out your escape. And that's how it was in Dunkirk in in that in that piece. I felt it so strongly. It's a difficult one to talk about. I think we both had similarly positive experiences watching the film, um, but we found different criticisms of it. And again, to to restate to to our listeners, this is like a five out of five film, maybe four out of five. This is a very good film, but when you get to a certain level of expertise and competence, we ask for more. It's not fair, but that's how good he is. So yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's not a bad way of putting it. Um, 
it's phenomenal. You know, it, it's we did, haven't even touched on things like the anti soundtrack, which some people have criticised. I didn't have a problem with. It was one of the few times actually that a, a, a soundtrack without melody worked for me really, really well. And, wow. and the, the incredible, yeah. yeah. And the, and the sound design, like I mentioned in the uh, in well throughout the film, but in in particular moments such as. Uh, the moment when uh, all the Tommies had, had, had stuck inside the boat was 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 great, um, and the 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 artillery on the aircraft, uh, sudden bursts of gunfire mm-hmm. to the right side, and I shouldn't say right side and left side. I don't know what the aviation terminology <laughs> is, but uh, bum really hits you. It reminded me of uh, one of the best things of Unbroken by Angelina Jolie. Oh yeah, yeah. Which, if I'm honest, felt like an, uh, a kind of an aggregation of other filmmakers' talents. Screenplay by the Coens, shot by Roger Deakins. I'm not sure how much Jolie brought to it, but let's give her the benefit of the doubt. The first 15 minutes of depicting the aircraft they're in was, for me, constant danger. You heard every rattle of every bolt. And that's what it felt like the, uh, with the, the dogfight scenes in, in Dunkirk, which just pissed all over Top Gun, which I saw... Earlier this year, or perhaps last year, uh, for the first time in ages, I think the term is parallax. Parallax is required to give context to what we're witnessing. Mm-hmm. Top Gun doesn't do it. It's just two. It's one or two planes in a sky, a blue sky. There's your cinematic understanding can't pass it. But in Dunkirk, it was done much better. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we really need to ask George Lucas's opinion of it because he he knows his shit when it comes to aerial photography, doesn't? Yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. With red tails, well, red tails is great. It, it, it really is some of yeah. the best stuff out there. And until Dunkirk, which is which is um, fantastic. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's things like levity, thing, things like just that sentimentality uh, wasn't quite there. And uh, so, yes, so he's not he's not Spielberg, is he? He can't combine it. No, he can't. Completely agree. But anyway, apart from that, five out of five. We love Dunkirk. <laughs> Moving on, we got um, run, running yeah. a little bit long, but we've got about, I don't know ten fifteen minutes. Do you want to talk about the other film that we both managed to catch at the cinema, um, The Big Sick, which is one that I remember on a previous podcast. I think you said you had um, very high hopes for, and uh, of course, this is starring um, Kumail Nunjiani. There you go. I, Kamal Nunjiani, so The Big Sick by by Michael Showalter mm-hmm. of Wet Hot American Summer, began uh, his sketch comedy career with The State in the very early 90s on MTV. This is a set of comedians that have, even more than the Apatow clan, have informed my own comedic taste and, if you like, soundtracked my comedy century. Mm-hmm. Showalter, Michael Ian Black, David Wayne, Joe Latrulio, A.D. Miles, usually enrolling Lizzie Banks, Paul Rudd, the polar coaster sometimes. Um, now, as a director, I'm not that familiar with Michael Showalter. He did a great film called The Baxter, starring himself with Lizzie, Michelle Williams, and Justin Theroux, who they often use. Mm. But I did, I did have high hopes for this. Um, I was hoping that Showalter was more than a gun for hire, and we've discussed often the relative inadequacies of Judd Apatow's own directing, but he is a terrific producer. It does feel like he's I got prob- his I- fingerprints. His fingerprints are on this, aren't they? Yeah, it's mad because his influences are superb. He loves Hal Ashby. He's all over Hal Ashby. And um, he's not quite there as a director, but as a producer and as a talent spotter, non-surpassed. 
So I went to the big sick hoping for something that might transcend its genre, maybe buck the genre, and I was let down. I went in... So this is, this is the difficulty, isn't it? My expectation and what I'm presented with are, are always going to be two different things. Now, with Dunkirk, uh, I think it's fair to defy audience expectations and deliver a story not about, you know, a, a bridge-too-far style expository a detail of exactly what happened across these 10 days doing something else with it i think is fine but with the big sick i had grander expectations and it fell short for me a good romantic comedy and one thing that it can't help is that british audiences are much more familiar with pakistanis that's the simplest way to put it right. now maybe in america this is a new culture to them or one which isn't often depicted on film and television but Every British person watching that film knows that Pakistanis are from Pakistan. Yeah. They know where Pakistan is. It's next to India. They understand partition. They've worked with Pakistanis or gone to school with them basically all of their lives, even in Suffolk, even in Norfolk. Uh, we know they play cricket, their family background, the notion of... And this was... It was it was good when Kamil Nanjani says, in my country, arranged marriage is called marriage. Mm. But these are... these uh, This is day one shit for most English people. And that's not to disrespect the particular cultural nuances of Kamal's experience and of Pakistanis, but we just know this stuff, don't we? We know <laughs> we know that it's a comparatively conservative culture and very family-oriented. What might be slightly eye-opening for American audiences, this is a, a comedy which takes as its lead a Pakistani-American. Um, this is something that we we just know about that. And I don't need to go back in time, but even 20 years, well, 22 years ago-ish, uh, goodness gracious me, perfectly detailed that aspect of Pakistani Anglo culture, um, Hindi Anglo culture. I liked, I still liked it. I did like it. And I thought Kamal skirted very nicely the line between smug and likeable. Mm, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah, something yeah. about his face. He kind of seems ironic the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Even, um, even when you, using terrible pickup lines or, or whatever... Uh, and using the same pickup lines uh, on 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 different yeah. people, you know, you 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 actually can't help but sort of accept it and think that that's that's fine, that's okay. Um, but I I think um, to its credit, it does make the Pakistani American experience seem uh, analogous to say the Jewish American experience in Annie Hall. Yeah or the Italian-American experience. But the thing is, that's not revelatory to me or to you. Don't forget the namesake, of course, of, of the of the film, The Big Sick. You know, the film does centre around, you know, someone who's terribly, terribly ill. They're in a coma. Uh, you know, he's up to that point having a, having a relationship that seemed to be going okay, ended in arguing and shouting. This person's then in a mm. coma, and it's then, how do you deal with that, you know, during that process, but also the, the fallout afterwards. Um, I don't know if we want to do too many spoilers on this one. I don't know how many people have seen it, but certainly, certainly um, I thought that some of those elements were, were fresh and, and different and it, it, it twist and turned a little bit. I wasn't always knowing where it was going to go. Um, I think, it, I yeah. think it also copped, it did cop out toward the end, maybe a little bit, but, uh, but ne nevertheless it, it was twisting and turning and it was, sumptuous in some of its performances holly hunter ray morero uh ray morano uh, can i just you know give give them a name check playing the 
the the, the yeah. parents of um of uh, of of the girl who's uh, who's in the coma and uh, they they were phenomenal. Holly Hunter's great in it in anything and um and she was truly fantastic yeah. in this. Welcome return for Holly Hunter. Again, to be clear, this is a film that I enjoyed but which I felt could go farther and didn't go as far as it could have done. But I still think one of my favourite moments of the year and a lesson that we can all learn is don't call Holly Hunter a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ray Romano, who I never interacted with on any level with Everybody Loves Raymond because it's not funny and it's uh, it's not it's just not for me. And it's a perfect example of one of those sitcoms that in the opening credits says, uh, uh, inspired by the comedy of Ray Romano. And I think, well, what? What flipping comedy, yo? There isn't anything to laugh at here. He's got a tall brother, <laughs> you know, mother fixation. But Ray was great, and it's uh, I think that's a sign of Apatow, who's known him for a while and put him, gave him a little cameo as himself and funny people. Here's another way in which I was inured to the charms of the big sick. I'd already seen Crashing earlier this year, mm. which is produced by Judd Apatow and details uh, a man in his... Late 20s, early 30s, breaking into stand-up comedy. So half of the show is set on couches and the back rooms of comedy clubs among comedians. Yeah, yeah. And this is all the same stuff. Bo Burnham and the girl from Girls. Yeah. Do you remember? Did you watch the last season? Yeah, I have done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's in that. She's charming in that and she's charming in this. But uh, how much Jada Patel comedy wankfest do I need? It was the same in Funny People... It's fun for Judd Apatow and his comic fraternity that he is Comedy. backstage <laughs> shenanigans, you know. It's insider stuff, isn't it? But it's slightly masturbatory, uh, a lot of ADR as usual, when you see the back of someone's head but you don't actually see their lips saying the line. That means that it's been added in ADR after the fact. It really bothers me. It's as distracting for me as CG or bad CG. Because this is the thing, for me, coming out of the cinema, I thought the best scene in that whole film, the most disarming scene in the whole film was when he turns up to see his family uh, with the deal actor from utopia and four lions is his brother or brother in law yeah. he takes out the folder of cue cards yeah you know what that was a comedy scene that had been written by a screenwriter you know what i mean like we mm. talked about with annie hall hey what if we write this before we shoot it yeah i, I completely genius completely you empathize know? with that yeah and um <laughs> It was yeah that that was um that was a great scene um had had some energy to it so yeah okay the big sick interesting enough and a good and a good film uh but Fletch uh, Fletch not such a not such a big fan didn't go, quite go far enough for you Fletch sorry to hear that again three three out of five it's a good film yeah I'd like it if people went to see it because I want Michael Showalter to have more opportunities to direct. But given the distinct artistic voices involved, that this is the writer and star of Wet Hot American Summer and the Baxter and Stella. No, it didn't go far enough for me. I missed opportunity. We hope you've enjoyed this issue of The Evening Glass. Now get out to the cinema and catch them while you can. From the world of Ben Wheatley, Gareth Tunley's The Ghoul, starring Tom Meaton, Alice Lowe, Dan Rent and Skinner. Maldy with Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke. And opening this week, A Ghost Story. Edswick's long-delayed... Porn's Sacrifice, and Stanley Tutri's Final Portrait. Keep your comments coming on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and join the conversation at onesensationalshop.com. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. Got a devil's haircut.
uh, when you heard you would be working with Harry, did you have any expectations? Don't answer that. 